house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. There are things that these people are simply incapable of. There are not. I'll try and remember that. Good. That's a nice ring. Have you set a date? Not yet. You should be careful what you wish for, Angel. Because we all have secrets. I have something to discuss with you, and I'm a bit scared. If you pursue this road, you will eventually come to moral decisions that will take you completely by surprise. What do you think I should do? I don't know, Counselor. Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that runs the last American glove factory. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my prized cheetah, Chris File. Hello, Chris. What? What happened to the other cheetah? Yeah, well, it's a long story. She has two cheetahs. Did she does I eat have t- the other cheetah. Well, I couldn't have called you my prized cheetahs because that would have been weird. So it's, it's, it's only you are. Don't know my you, life. you are worth two cheetahs, is what I will say. Okay, that's that's better. Both with like diamond encrusted uh, uh, collars, mm-hmm. and you have my spots tattooed all over your back. Yes. And when I uh, give you commands, it's with a thick Barbados patois that uh, turns out to be very thick. problematic. In, in the original, uh, from what we have understood by Hollywood Reporter articles co-written by Merle Ginsburg, we have heard that <laughs> Cameron Diaz is... Ginsburg, she's doing like hundred word pieces for the Hollywood Reporter. The Yelp that, are... that I left out, that I let out, when I looked up where the report first came, the Cameron Diaz had to overdub uh, her original dialogue because it was too, too thick uh, in in uh, whatever bar- her Barbadian. Barbados accent was too thick. Uh, to find out that that article on the in the Hollywood Reporter was co bylined by Merle Ginsburg, famous of the first two seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, I uh, I howled and immediately sent it to you. So. Yeah, that Has was the word. Paul seen the counselor. The specific term that that article said was people thought she sounded too much like Rihanna, <laughs> which is fantastic. In yeah. fairness, half of Cameron Diaz's dialogue is a uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can say whatever. <laughs> Ooh, nah, nah. No pain is forever. Right, right. Um,. I mean, we're going to talk about Cameron Diaz a lot in this episode, so like, let's not let's not blow it all right now. But there's a lot to talk about. There are the, my expectations going into this movie in 2013 were pretty much like 99% Cameron Diaz based. I was very very excited for her in this movie, and I was disappointed. I will say. So, was this your first watch of this movie? It was no. mine. Oh, was it really? Oh no, I definitely it saw it back when it when it first came out. 
I was very, very into the the concept of this movie. Oh, this was your first time. This is very interesting because, like, there's this is kind of notorious on like a, a few levels. So you had a lot of uh, mm-hmm. pre expectations, I imagine, going in. Oh, absolutely. I wasn't. Maybe it missed me when this movie came out that this is kind of. I guess you forget that the Cormac McCarthy side of it is even going to be true in a screenplay he writes that it's like everybody talks elliptically in metaphors in these grand themes and you can't necessarily follow what's happening because there is nothing expositional whatsoever this or is like this is an incredibly sort of gritty crime drama that essentially plays out as a series of one-on-one meetings with Michael Fassbender and like various cogs within this like drug empire and each person he talks to goes on a like 20 minute sort of elliptical musing Monologue about the universe about existence and, and guilt and it's just like, and its main characters will do this, but then like the supporting cast is incredibly well populated because it's like, who am I going to get to go on this monologue about the nature of goodness and man? And it's like, An hello, credited John Gans. Leguizamo. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it is the Cormac McCarthy of it all really, really comes through. The thing about the movie, for as much as. I don't care about the story at all. And I don't know if necessarily the the filmmakers need you to care about the movie very much at all. But, like, truly, the point in this movie where I absolutely am just, like, I'm giving up on trying to understand what's happening here was very early. But... <laughs> scene number two. But it gives you... For a movie that's, I think, I would say mediocre and disappointing it gives you like four or five really indelible scenes that like that's better than a lot of movies give that's better than most mediocre movies give like i am never going to forget at least three or four things that happen in this movie although you're certainly not going to forget uh one thing that happens in this movie can i um maybe take the opportunity to shock you yeah or be predictable you loved it I fucking loved it. Of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, I maybe loved... What made me love it more is, like, all of the things that are pretentious and obnoxious yeah. about the Cormac I mean, you, it would have to. Should, There's no other way to love this movie. It, it, it's, like, those things that should put me off that I find pretentious and annoying while I'm watching it. Nevertheless... Uh, I was undeterred in uh, loving it, and it kind of made me. Lo- I was like, I should be hating this, but I am not. The- I do. I do uh, have a lot of reservations about the optics of this movie. I think this is yeah. another movie that, like, you know, wants to present Mexico as you this- know this horrifying. Uh, you know, this was a thing I I wanted to talk about, and we'll get into it on the other end of the plot description. But yes, we'll definitely discuss that. Uh, Cormac McCarthy has a boner for stereotyping Mexico as purely just a crime-ridden country that I find offensive. Beyond that, 
it's not just Cormac McCarthy, but yes. Like, he's right. not alone it's in not, the Hollywood landscape I mean, about like, this, and I want to talk this about is my, This is the thing that makes me not like Sicario as much. Even Chris, though, like, I swear to God we'll get into all of this. Please, <laughs> like, just like put a pin in it. I swear. We'll get there. I promise We'll get there. You. We'll get there. We'll get there. But, um, yeah, I mean, that was my big reservation about the movie. Otherwise, like, I was kind of... Uh, really admiring the fact that this is a giant studio movie that gets away with a lot of... It, it feels like yes. everybody involved knows they're pulling a fast one. Yes. And I kind of respect that in a really big way. I do, too. The things that you talk about really liking in this movie are not the reasons why I don't like this movie. I want to... Like, that's to be clear my i think my ultimate and it's not like i hate this movie but ultimately i'm unsatisfied by it and i think it's because all of that sort of ornamentation is hung onto a story that feels my thing is if you're going to turn this whole thing into a rumination into a series of ruminations on uh what like a person's inherent naivety or um hubris in entering sort of this like criminal element and and entering a world in which he is not equipped to operate which is sort of the thing that's it's saying about Michael Fassbender's character i think what undergirds it is so empty and so um not hacky but like it's every fucking you know drug empire movie i've seen for the last 20 years so like ultimately the rest of it does to me come across as ornamentation on something that is otherwise very very typical and i think there's something true to that and to me what is happening is that it is somewhat exposing cormac mccarthy that like the you know very visible themes of his work and like his yeah. big ideas about human existence yeah and, you know human hubris and human suffering yes. is um you know, it it can be really, it's praised, you know, to the heavens everywhere. And, like, sometimes it can be a little thin. And I think Ridley Scott knows that and is, like, unafraid to say, <laughs> to, like, you know. I just don't think Ridley Scott gives a shit. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, okay, but, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put forth the visuals that I feel like this movie is calling for and i don't think ridley scott super cares that there's not a whole, a whole lot at the center of this movie i don't think ridley scott super cares about the plot of this movie i mean ridley scott it's like this is like ridley scott's julie taymor movie yes yeah. the counselor is like a production of titus andronicus oh set God. in a versace ad it is like it is supposed to be gauche and like uh, superficial to this extreme that is like an alien planet you know but like getting to that level of extremity is also maybe getting to a certain level of truth that like you know Cormac McCarthy is reaching for but I think is on the thinner side or just like you know so obtuse um, it's funny that you mention that you mentioned uh, Versace because in no less than two articles that I uh, 
that I are sorry, and no less than two reviews of this movie that I read as I was preparing for this. Uh, Manola Dargis compares. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Manola Dargis compares. Manola Cameron liked Diaz. it. I read Manola. Yeah, she did. She was one of the ones who liked it, and she compares um, Cameron Diaz's character to living in some sort of like Donatello Versace fantasy. And then I read um, Wesley Morris's review, which is still up because Grantland is still the archives of that are still up and he also liked it. And he talked about Javier Bardem's character as looking as if he survived a nuclear meltdown at the Versace plant, which made me, <laughs> but that's laugh not quite true of his character because like, no, the look of him, though. the look is of him. So yeah. Yeah. But see, I disagree. What it is with that character is that he is the type of grifter. Yes. Wannabe. Yes. Uh, crime Lord. And also, like, tacky person that it's like, he'll wear a Versace shirt with a Louis Vuitton belt and a Gucci set of pants and, like, uh, Dolce & Gabbana sunglasses so that it's all just it's all exclamation points. Right. You know? It's a, it's funny to see him, the, the Cormac McCarthy through line of him from No Country for Old Men, where he plays the sort of, like, elemental reality of pitiless evil. And now to this, he is playing just this avatar of tacky, like, criminal weakness. You know what I mean? Like, he's such a... He's so... He's as in over his head as anybody else in this movie. That's one of the, the one of the actual interesting things about this movie is you get characters like Javier Bardem's or Brad Pitt's who have these long scenes with Michael Fassbender where they're really sort of like condescending to him and they're being like, well, you're really fucked up now. You're in over, like you are, you know, you're going to get sort of, you know, what's coming to you for jumping into this without knowing what you're doing. And then both of them get like, get got in ways that expose them as being in over their heads too. And mm-hmm. that's sort of what I like that, that um, it, at the very least, these faux mentors who turn out to be like, not a very much help to Michael Fassbender's character at all. end up, you know, and in stories like these, you know, the middlemen always get what's coming to them anyway. So I guess it's not that surprising, but it's certainly, Brad Pitt's death scene. I know when we were talking about, like, the indelible moments in this movie, and, like, you were definitely talking about Cameron Diaz's fucking the car. And, like, yeah, I was too. But, I like, Brad Pitt's death scene in this movie is going to be living in my head for the rest of my days. And it's... Apparently the unrated version is even longer. Oh, His God. death scene takes a forever. So... Um, I, this is what I love about it, though, because and it's and it's classic like Chekhov, like we're going to describe this Bolito device in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And then it just sort of like sits there in the recess of your brain, because the way that Bardem's character describes it, you're like, wait, how does that work in practice? Like, what's like what's what would that look like? And then the end of the movie, of course, you see it. And it's been, like, festering in the back of your head for all this time. And if you're anything like me, and are, like, sort of, like, an extreme empath with movies, and you always sort of, like, put yourself in the position of whatever character is at the center of the scene, and you're like, what would I do if I were in this scene? And anything in a movie that's about crime or drugs or whatever, I'm always just like, oh, I would, like, find the quickest way out of this. You know what I mean? Like, that's sort of what I would do. And I think the thing about the Brad Pitt death scene in this, like, the the 
baseline terror of it is like as soon as it's over your neck, you're dead before you know it. And you have to like and it takes a few minutes, but there's nothing you can do. There's absolutely no escape from this. There's nothing that you could be like, well, if he would have just done this, like he would be fine. No, the thing that he could have done differently was like not get out of bed that morning. Like that's the thing. That's the only (laughs) way he could have gotten out of it. And the fact that like, and I think Brad Pitt plays that scene so well, where he literally is just like, just like yelling in frustration and kind of like sitting on the ledge of this building in like almost like waiting for it to saw his fingers off and then saw his neck off. And he's got this posture of like this fucking day you know what i mean like as his like upper torso is like struggling or whatever he's sort of sitting on the edge the this uh you know the stoop of this building and the posture is just sort of just like i can't believe this you know what i mean it's just like it's great it's so great like i mean oh, i guess thematically too this like device makes complete sense too because it's like once it's already around your neck the decision has been made yes. it cannot be reversed you are already setting this into motion and that's and like that's Fassbender's story a reflection movie. of yes. Fassbender's entire story in this movie it's like yes. you enter this life of crime guess what your entire fate is sealed and you cannot escape that um, so like it's not just this uber violent scene for its own sake I guess right. Right. Which feels like I, I'm way more inclined to credit what I like this about this movie to Ridley Scott than I am to Cormac Same. McCarthy. Same. Yes. Because, like, even just, like, the aesthetics of it that we were talking about, it's like, I don't think that's a Cormac McCarthy choice. I think, right. you know, and, like, you'd probably give this to someone else and they'd be like, oh, it's we're going to make it another Western, this type of crime movie. But, like, instead, he turns it into... Ridley Scott makes this movie that's, like, not even fluorescent, but, like, this bold cornucopia of excess and perversion. It looks like a series of very expensive like Puff Daddy music videos from the 19, like the late 1990s, early 2000s. And I don't mean that as a pejorative. Like there is a, there is a lot of like music video aesthetics to it's everything. It's like if Hype Williams Diaz's was scene. really depressed. Yes. <laughs> if Hype Williams was like really like contemplative about the nature of human beings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, let's get into the plot before we get too far into it, because I, I want to get into that. But, like, there's a lot of ephemera about this that, like, I want to get into as well about Cormac McCarthy, Ridley Scott, Cameron Diaz, Michael Fassbender. There's a lot There's a lot to go around, and I want to get to it as quickly as possible. The sex scenes. Yes, exactly. Um, so we're talking about 2013's The Counselor, directed by Ridley Scott, written by uh, Cormac McCarthy in his first original screenplay uh this was not a novel originally first that was produced he's had okay. some that have published apparently but I like see. this is i mean maybe you see why this is the first <laughs> one that's produced but yes but yeah not a, not originally a novel this was uh, written directly for the screen starring michael fassbender as the titular counselor he is not known by any other names Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz, Javier Bardem, Brad Pitt, Rosie Perez, Edgar Ramirez as a hot priest, Bruno Ganz, Natalie Dormer, Ruben Blattis. It premiered on October 25th, 2013. Chris, I'm going to haul out my little stopwatch and challenge you in <laughs> we'll one minute. See 
how this goes. It's. I am very, very happy that it is you doing the plot of this movie and not me. Are you ready? <laughs> Much to my hubris, I was like, oh, awesome. I get to do the 60-second plot yeah. description for The Counselor. Good luck. I'm an idiot. That's not something to be excited for. This is impossible. All right. Are you ready? Uh, Sure. And begin. Okay, so Michael Fassbender plays a lawyer known only as the counselor. He's basically just this fancy pants lawyer for shady criminals and drug dealers. And he asks his girlfriend Laura, played by Penelope Cruz, to marry him, and he marry him, and he gets a massive diamond. And apparently, he's really great at sex stuff. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, he's going half seas on a shipment of coke with Reiner, played by an electrocuted Javier Bardem. <laughs> Reiner's girlfriend, shall we say, uh, car enthusiast Malkina, played by Cameron Diaz and voiced by another Cameron Diaz, hatches a plan to steal their drugs and their money for herself. This seconds. results in the beheading of a drug cartel member that implicates the counselor, and like everyone has to go on the run, including Laura, who's kidnapped and also beheaded, unbeknownst to the counselor who runs away to Mexico. Reiner is then shot in this massive shootout, and also Reiner's associate Westray, basically Brad Pitt in a cowboy hat, has important bank codes stolen from him by one of Malcone, uh, Malkina's plants, and uh, he is also beheaded in broad daylight. Uh, the counselor is still hiding in Mexico and then receives a snuff film of Laura presumably being beheaded. Headed, and, and that's gets away with time. She, yeah, I mean, she gets away with everything except she has to like give up her two cheetahs. Has to yes, her two cheetahs who uh, who are lost amid the Javier Bardem assassination. They uh, right. They start roaming the desert, uh, never to be found again. Yeah, uh, the uh, cheetahs are a metaphor I don't understand. Cameron Diaz gets to end this movie. Uh, Incredibly wealthy and also uh, staring into the handsome face of Goran Vizhnik. So, um, good but for cheetahless. her. But cheetah But cheetah yes. She's lost her cheetahs, but she's gained many, many millions of dollars. Yeah, um, it, when this trailer first came out, and there's like, there's the shot of the cheetah, there's the shot of her sort of prowling on the hood of the car in anticipation of the scene where she fucks the Ferrari. And then you also get a glimpse of the cheetah print tattoo on her. And I literally was like, is she playing Chitara from the Thundercats in this? <laughs> like, does she become a cheetah at the end of this movie? Is that sort of, is she like a reincarnated cheetah? Is that what's happening here? Because like, she's very, the, the no, visual language of that trailer. Enthusiast. She's just like, but like, all of the visual language of her is very much like feline animal. She's sort of, she's lying in wait. She is pouncing when the time is right. She is the one who sort of like fucks this all up for all of the, the male characters around her. She is the reason why everybody who dies in this movie dies. And it's watching that trailer. I was so excited. I was like, this is what we've been waiting for. She had been shunned by the Oscars so many times, being John Malkovich and Vanilla Sky. And, and even for things like she wasn't really buzzed for that we loved, we covered uh, in her shoes many, many moons ago on this podcast. And we've both said, I think that it's her best performance in that movie. And I would stand, stand by, by it. So going into this movie, it's 2013. There is kind of a, uh, she's, you could envision, at least, a world in which a we owe Cameron Diaz an Oscar nomination thing happens. And I look at that trailer and I'm like, this is it. We've got it. 
It's Cormac McCarthy, who's still got the the shine from No Country for Old Men on him. It's Ridley Scott, who is, like, certainly not a sure thing, but, like, has succeeded enough times to feel like this is within the realm of possibility. It's clearly a juicy character. This is a supporting actress nomination. Waiting for it. She's going to be great, obviously. This role is going to be so much fun. And then the movie happens... The reviews are terrible. We find out that her vocal performance was so bad that she had to end up redubbing her lines. And for as much as I sometimes find her affect successful in this role, there are just as many times where I'm just like, I would have tried that again. I would have given this scene another okay, shot. Okay, here's the thing. First of all, we don't know that it was bad, just that audiences didn't, test audiences didn't like it. Can't imagine why you would do a test screening for this movie. Well, what is a test audience going to like at all in this movie? All right, but like, Chris, but like, answering me honestly, would you have preferred this this performance with a thicker Barbados accent from her? It's I mean, honestly, I think it's really hard to say. Because... Okay. You don't have to tell somebody that she had to ADR her lines because the ADR in this movie is bad. Yeah. It's bad. And it you is. can tell that she was upset to be having to do it because, like, you can tell they didn't spend much time doing the ADR. So it's like we don't – it feels like – I don't want to use a phrase like defangs because she literally has a gold uh, incisor <laughs> in this movie. Is that the right tooth? I don't know. Science. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think so. The eye tooth, right? Your dog tooth. But, like, Ironically. you can tell we're not watching the performance as it's supposed to be. That's why I joked it was played by Cameron Diaz and voiced by another Cameron Diaz. Right. It's like, but, like, I even if, if you watch this movie on mute, right, and you looked at just, like, her facial expressions and physicality even on that level it's an inconsistent performance from scene to scene there are sometimes where just like i think she's probably miscast or like it's just not clicking it's like, just not clicking i feel like it's just, not, it's clicking. just not clicking yes but i do also feel like i it's a performance i can't fully judge because sure and she's trying to give a vocal quality that like even if it was silly like what isn't fucking silly in this movie? Like, look at Javier Bardem. He is like Brian Grazer on Lose. <laughs> right. It's, there's If there's anything distracting in this movie, it's every single time Javier Bardem walks on screen. No, that's I, I don't disagree with that. All I'm saying is, even within the realm of I want her to be showy, I want her to be gaudy in this, it doesn't always work. And I wish it did. I would have been first right. in line to be like Cameron Diaz, secret masterpiece. You're all out of your mind. You all missed this. Like, I would love to be that guy. But I, I can't get there with this performance. I feel like it's impossible because we don't... I mean, like, a, a vocal quality is as much important as a physicality to a performance. I'm like... We're just not seeing it. And also, like, and Ridley Scott reportedly was also pissed about being forced to do this. So it's like, I don't... Yeah. I don't know. I feel like Do you think Cameron he had Diaz to fight to got... Do you think he had to fight to keep them from making Lady Gaga overdub her uh, House of Gucci? <laughs> ADR, uh, uh okay, show of hands, who's off book for the House of Gucci trailer? <laughs> it is the defining event of our lifetime until we get the rest of House of Gucci. But yes, that's <laughs> but like that to me is a very similar thing. The House of Gucci trailer 
did kind of remind me of watching the counselor trailer and how much I was, how delicious I found Cameron Diaz in the counselor trailer is how delicious I find Lady Gaga in the, in the house of Gucci trailer. And so I realized that there with the house of Gucci trailer, there was a lot to process, but I do think that we moved on too quickly from the fact that she says the word synonymous (laughs) with that dialect. (laughs) She says a lot of words. That's I think that's the key thing Similarly is that like in the counselor trailer, Stop. I don't think they let Cameron Diaz's character say anything. And she, like Lady Gaga talks a lot in the House of Gucci trailer, so maybe I'm more optimistic because it's of that. time to take out the trash. <laughs> yes, um, but the counselor as an object sort of is the thing that's keeping me from being like we got a slam dunk in Gucci because like Gucci could go bad, like counselor went bad. So you never know. You never know. Well, I'm I mean, keeping Ridley myself. Scott has done multiple movies in a single year, and yeah. uh, it's paid off for him before. So let's talk about the the Ridley Scott thing while we're on the subject. Then, so this is our fourth Ridley Scott film. It's the most. He's our most covered director by this point. So we've done. 1492 Conquest of Paradise, which was one of our very, very first movies that we t- that we covered long enough ago that I already, once again, don't really remember much about it. <laughs> so that that history has, has corrected itself. We talked as much about that Enigma song as we talked about the movie. That's right. <laughs> uh, Hannibal, the sequel to The Silence of the Lambs that neither one of us likes very much. And then the incredibly just wayward and and why was this made uh, exodus gods and kings so of the four ridley scott movies that we've covered this is probably my favorite but there's a there's a little bit of a by default to it i would say right yeah, i mean we cover the bad ridley scott movies on this podcast that's sort of our thing that's sort of our thing all right so at this to point, the point in his... that i had originally thought well next year we should do a ridley scott miniseries but because he has two movies coming out in two months yeah within each other it feels this like this was the uh, time to do it yeah this is the time to talk about ridley scott so at this sort of stage of his career I don't want to go through the whole Ridley Scott career back to like Blade Runner and whatever because like that's it's it's a long career. But so his last sort of Oscar success before this movie, before The Counselor, he had gotten a supporting actress nomination for Ruby D for American Gangster in 2007, but even that that one had ambitions that were a lot bigger than just a supporting actress nomination, right? Like Denzel mm-hmm. doesn't get nominated. It doesn't get picture director. And those were definitely in the hopes and dreams for Universal for American Gangster. So that wasn't really so much. The, re- the, the last real Oscar success for him was obviously Gladiator winning Best Picture in 2000, and then him getting a follow-up Best Director nomination for Black Hawk Down in 2001. So, like, that was the last sort of hurrah for Ridley Scott before The Counselor. Now, we're two years shy of The Martian being, like, the Ridley Scott Oscar comeback project, right? So, although he... Did he not get the Director nomination for The Martian? Am I remembering? I'm gonna that look right? it up, but I think that is I think that was a sub- one time. No, I think Gladiator is the only time that 
his movies are nominated for picture and director. He did not get a director nomination for The Martian, right. which was considered like one of the big snubs. It was a surprise. It was a I surprise. I was surprised at the time. I was, actually, because I think The Martian was projecting as one of the stronger contenders that year. And it had done so well in the precursor season. And I was like, and it's Ridley Scott. So I was, I was definitely expecting that to happen. I think the whole Globes comedy thing... Whether so or not though. you, I don't want to get into is that movie a comedy? Was that no, stupid? God. What I do ultimately think it did is it positioned the movie in a certain type of way and invited people to consider it in a type of way that movies don't get director nominations for. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So previous to The Counselor, his most recent films had been Robin Hood, the the Russell Crowe, Kate Blanchett, Robin Hood in 2010. That like. It existed, and yet, like, I I never saw it, and I don't... I have never seen that movie. And nobody ever talks about it. Nobody... Like, they've made Robin Hood seemingly 17 times since this movie, and nobody talks about this Robin Hood. Um, and then 2012, Prometheus, which, like, you talk about a movie where the trailer had me amped. Like, the trailer for Prometheus... Holy fuck, yeah. ...had me so so excited the visuals looked amazing it was like we we were sort of coming out of the muck of the alien versus predator stuff and it's just like no like this is ridley scott is back we're we're you know going back to basics and it looked astounding and the finished product of prometheus i know that movie has some high profile defenders i wish i could be one of them and it just didn't work for me and it works more for me now than it did at the time. And I think it's I because we were expecting, you know, more traditional Alien. And he, he would go even further afield with Alien Covenant. Yes. Um, Which is I in like, some I ways, like, in some ways I find Covenant better and in some ways I find Covenant worse. So it's even, it's even fucking weirder than Prometheus. But like Prometheus and this movie both kind of create this, uh, you know, these paired movies about hubris and yeah i don't know maybe i'm talking myself into liking the counselor even less but like prometheus <laughs> i think ultimately is a more it's just as much of a blunt instrument in like how hubristic these people oh behave. very a very blunt instrument in that i and i think but it, in that way maybe it's a little bit more successful than the counselor that's possible is. I, but regardless of how you or i individually think about prometheus though like it was universal like in a, in a global sense it was a disappointment like fans people were not satisfied people didn't like like fans and critics alike were you know muted at best in their in their appreciation of prometheus so ridley scott was kind of at a i don't i don't want to say a low period because ultimately like he doesn't give a shit <laughs> you know what i mean he immediately and, turns around and gets to shit away however many hundreds of million dollars on exodus gods and kings which no one cares about absolutely right. no one cares about that but then the martian in 2015 and then like the success story that becomes of all the money in the world like snatched from also the jaws of the same year as alien covenant right um right but in terms of oscar the story is all the money in the world and he comes out of that one kind of smelling like a rose because this movie that looked like it had been left for dead ends up doing a lot better than anybody thought it would and so i think a lot and of that I've argued that it's a lot better of a movie than people think it is you have argued that i don't hate it um 
I'll leave it at that. And so that's the last that we had seen of Ridley Scott, as, uh, you know, on film at least, for the last four years. And now all of a sudden, uh, two movies about to get released in the thick of Oscar season. The Last Duel, which is, of course, naturally a Ben Affleck and Matt Damon movie written by Nicole Holofcener <laughs> about, uh, about a duel that happens because Jodie Comer, who is married to... Affleck? Damon. I believe. One of them. I can never remember. You guys, I can never remember. They both have soul patches in this movie. Though. She's... And soul patches and bowl cuts. That's all you need to know. She is married to Matt Damon. She is sexually assaulted by Adam Driver? Is yes. that it? And then Matt Damon challenges Adam Driver to a, du- to a duel... While Jodie Comer is like, why are you doing this? This is all, this is only making things harder for me. You're only putting my life in danger by doing this. Stop this. And he won't because he's a man. So that's sort of the idea of The Last Duel. There's a lot of raised eyebrows about this movie, but people were generally very, very pleased with the trailer. And there is now. Jodie Comer looks great. That's what everybody says. By the time that this episode airs, it will have played Venice. We don't know what the Venice response will be because we're recording this before the premiere. Right. I think other people are more optimistic about this movie after the trailer than I am, but I am willing to be proved wrong. It is 152 minutes, as is now currently listed. It might change if the the reception is uh, unfavorable, but otherwise you are getting two and a half hours of terrible haircuts on Matt and Ben. So, and apparently, like a Rashomon esque structure that you know changes the point of view of characters as it gives their perspectives. So, I am really there is the potential for it to be a nightmare. <laughs> I am interested. Um, I am not necessarily sold on it, but I am definitely interested. I am much more excited. Let's say about House of Gucci. Because even if House of Gucci is bad, it is probably going to be bad in a way that I will enjoy. If it's going to be bad, it's going to be Ridley Scott's Scarface. That's what I keep saying this movie looks like to me. Not just because there's, like, disco scenes and, like... um, I do also just love how uh, Stephanie has, you know, constantly gone back to, you know, the anecdote is when she was at NYU, she was constantly given Marissa Tomei scenes to do. I love that. I'm just happy that she's returning to her roots and giving a Marissa Tomei performance. Here's what I'll say. The fact that this is a, based on a true story, and like, we'll use based, like, we're going to put a lot of energy into the word based. Like, that, it's going to do a lot of work in that uh, in that sentence, right? Um, about, like, crime and murder and betrayal in a very, very wealthy Italian family, right? So, like, in that way, it the concept of it brings me to all the money in the world a little bit, right? Which is also mm-hmm. about crime and scandal within an incredibly wealthy and closed-off family. And so, if House of Gucci is all the money in the world, but with... A more talented leading man, which I will take Adam Driver any day of the week over Mark Wahlberg. Absolutely. 
and more fun, which it certainly seems to be from the trailer, unless the trailer is Absolutely. full on lying to us. Like, even if, even if, like, okay, the people that think that this is, like, bona fide, guaranteed Oscar movie, uh, I think I would, uh, they, they maybe need to take a knee for a minute. It they could be, to, but like, it's not guaranteed. <laughs> it could be, but, like, you know, that trailer did not sell me as such. I mean, but I think, regardless, we're going to have a good-ass time at this movie. Yes. I will say, yes. the thing I think we maybe and I, I apologize to my listeners that I'm about to make scream, the thing I think everybody just needs to brace themselves for and prepare to happen this season is another Jared Leto nomination. I was, I was going to say. That's the thing that I got from that trailer. I was like, oh boy, we got another Jared Leto award season ahead of us. This is not going to be fun. When but... they released those character posters, and I looked at them, and I literally was like, I did not know Jeffrey Tambor was in this movie. Because he, Jared Leto <laughs> looks with like with the facial prosthetics and the and the everything that he's made up made up for it he looks like Jeffrey Tambor he just does also, at least in it's that trailer so clearly or in that poster primed to be the one who is going the hugest yes. with the voice his dialect is the most ridiculous yes. in this um the fact that we got so close to getting not get pushback for it the fact that he came so close to a nomination for the little things tells me that like Oscar voters do not feel the same way about Jared Leto the way that a lot of us do. So like Correct. there is not any kind of aversion to him among them. So yes, I think there is I think he has the best shot of that cast at this moment of getting an Oscar nomination. I think Correct. L- Lady Gaga does have a good shot, but the reviews have to be great for her for it to happen. They do and like my fear this whole time after a star is born right. is like Everybody's going to be on board, and then the next time they have to slap her down a big in a way. They're going to try to slap her down. We've seen that with so many, especially musical stars, who get down through the history of the cinema. Like it's it's just something that if she can avoid it happening, yes, I think she will be golden for a nomination. Meanwhile, we got to see what this movie is. I will sit in my corner and be content to just be the person being like. Guys, Adam Driver is very good. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> He's I, been a Gucci all his life. I love him. And I and I genuinely I feel very uh, confident in his hands in any kind of a in any kind of a role like this. I think he will be able to deliver it well and it's interesting that he's in both of the he's in both of the ridley scott's he's the connective tissue of the ridley scott's fall movies this year so yeah he's going to get if he gets nominated he'll get nominated for whichever one is the most boring in the same year that he should probably be getting nominated for annette um right and god what a year for adam driver he's so good you guys he's so good um it's so funny the way that Gen- the general sort of cultural conversation lags behind sometimes a, a film Twitter, for for lack of a better term, where I feel like this year I'm seeing a lot of, like, incredulous, like, people think Adam Driver's handsome. And I'm like, we've litigated this. We litigated this years ago. We went through it. We made our peace with it. Adam Driver is hot. We've 
we figured it out. Just like, just catch up. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you people. Like the topography of his like chest muscles, like it's a landscape. It the constellation of his facial moles. His, like we know it. His features. He's a very large featured man, and we've all decided that it's good. And so this is settled. This is settled law. And I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Anyway. We've litigated it. We've been a Gucci all our lives. Yes. It's all right. done. Not to, not to whiplash from the crass to the uh, somewhat serious, but the thing I wanted to revisit before too long, the thing that we were talking about, about this, these movies like The Counselor that sort of settle into this milieu of Mexican drug cartels, Latin American drug cartels, as kind of the new mafia, as the new sort of criminal enterprise that filmmakers are really fascinated by. And The Counselor is very, very, very much within this uh, framework. Mm -hmm. And it is not a thing... It's... I, I... I want to make sure that I'm not being hypocritical here because a lot of the things about this movie that I find incredibly captivating and visually arresting and thrilling are things that have to do with the way Ridley Scott depicts some of the more violent actions in this movie. The beheadings in this movie, the fact that there are three beheadings feels intentional and the way he films two of them, like the the Penelope Cruz thing at the end, we see in the aftermath and we're very, very sad by it. Even though Penelope Cruz's character is not much more than a stock figure, as far as yeah, I'm zero clue why Penelope Cruz said yes, I will play this nothing character exactly. But Brad Pitt's death scene, and then also the beheading of the motorcyclist on the road, are both incredibly memorable and really violent. And so I don't want to be like a hypocrite and say like I it doesn't work on me or that I am not. In, in some ways, maybe part of the problem. But there is a way in which filmmakers, especially in the last 10, 15 years or so, mm-hmm. have settled into this exoticism about Mexican drug cartels and the, the ways in which stories about them, they feel like they're given this license to really indulge in the barbarism and violence of what happens there. Now, mm-hmm. whether this is based in, you know, factual reports, obviously things like Ciudad Juarez and um, the like actual real life drug cartels, like there are reports about stuff like this. These kinds of things do happen. I'm not saying that this stuff is being like made up well, out of whole the cloth. intention? Like in this movie, it's more of like, it uses that type of setting as a construct, right? It's this construct for, you know, uh, you know, a, a ceaseless amount of violence, you know, an expectation of violence. Whereas, like, something like the Sicario sequel is way more overt in the specific things that it's doing. I'm not saying The Counselor isn't offensive, but, like, I think it's, it's more it's that the like, counselor is part of a general trend and landscape that I wanted exactly. to sort of call out because it did it made me think about it a lot. I think it's it's not just the fact that this is sort of a stand-in for 
the world of crime. Because we've seen that with other, like I said, you see that with the mafia, you see that with movies that are about like Russian crime syndicates or whatever. But I think specifically the fact that movies and TV shows, because you've seen it with, you mentioned Sicario, um, Breaking Bad indulges in this. Even a great movie, like I would say No Country for Old Men, uses the sort of, in a very sort of like elemental, constant threat of violence from the drug mm-hmm. trade uh, it, from coming up from uh, Latin America and Mexico. So you see this a lot where it's not only just like this is the framework in which we're telling organized crime stories now. It is, again, it comes down to the exoticism of it and the ways in which you see it in I mean, this movie does the lack of humanity of presentation. You know, these aren't fleshed out characters. Right. The way where Brad Pitt's characters like these people operate on another level, man, they will like, you know, and and the ways in which, again, it's the barbar, uh, the barbarism of it, the way that like the othering, the the fact that like you do not know, like this is so far beyond Sicario says it outright, too. It's just like you are not prepared for the level of violence that this particular element is introducing. And again, you get it in in shows like Breaking Bad, where it's like, oh, you know, this person has gone so far when now these you know the level of violence is being ratcheted up so much by the involvement with the south american cartels you see it in weeds you see it in just like it and it's more overt in some ways and it's more casual in some ways and i just think it's worth mentioning because it does give me pause and i am not a person who loves crime stories anyway i'm much much more apt to be weary of them and be sort of skeptical of them but I think it's warranted here. I think it's warranted at least Mm -hmm. like taking a step back and being like, why do we find this particular kind of violence so exotic in movies like this? And I don't know who to, I mean, like, I feel like it's a recurring thing for Cormac McCarthy. So I'm more prone to like put the authorial voice on what I find problematic about this movie onto Cormac McCarthy. But like, there's also this thing where no one's really a fully fleshed out character in this. And that's, partly the point like bruno gans is just a diamond seller who monologues about diamonds right. like but like it still doesn't avoid being offensive in that way like it doesn't feel fully arbitrary it doesn't feel like it is i don't think it's particularly virulent in this movie but it's definitely there and it is part yeah. of a trend as a whole that when you sort of take it as the an accumulation of a lot of other movies, it does feel virulent. And it does feel like, again, and the first Sicario, at least, is a movie I like a lot of parts of. I don't hate that movie, but I think that aspect of it, the aspect of it that is, you know, Benicio Del Toro's character sort of like, again, monologuing about how... And part of it is, I will also say, part of it is that a lot of these stories are told as a representation of this idea that the United States has meddled in things that they should not have been meddling in and have made situations worse by their involvement. And this is now chickens coming home to roost. And the violence of this, all all of this is chickens coming home to roost. And so I get why, that is a compelling story to tell because it is a thing that is still going on and it's a thing that speaks to America's character as a whole, right? right. So I I get why 
the cranking up and the really sort of like focusing on the levels of barbaric violence in those stories feels like a necessary thing to show because it ultimately is commenting. It ultimately points the finger back at the United States, right? That this is, I think Sicario at least attempts to do that and how it's directed. I hate the script, right? But like, I, I I'm with you on that. I, my things that I like about Sicario are the directing and, and Emily Blunt. Um, but yes, this is we don't have to like relitigate Sicario. But yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but but the sequel is uh way worse. It is yeah. one of the most offensive things I've seen in the past few years. I didn't see it, so I'm fine. Don't. But I just I it's and you know, I'm not gonna figure this all out in, in one little podcast discussion today. But I'm just right. saying it's a thing right. that that is it's something you have to grapple with yeah. the counselor. And I think the things that are like attempting to be obtuse and abstract and like, you know, uh, you know, uh, vague in the way that Cormac McCarthy is vague is like, it feels like it's maybe giving itself an out, but it's also the exact same thing that kind of stumbles into the more problematic things about this movie. Right. So this is in my tally, the fourth major motion picture that is, based on a Cormac McCarthy either novel or screenplay, right? There was... We've actually covered one already. We did All the Pretty Horses, the 2000 movie uh, directed by Billy Bob Thornton. That was a huge Miramax hopeful in the year 2000 and really, really was not. That also starred Penelope Cruz. Um, then... Oh, sorry. This would be the fifth because No, uh, yes. no Country for Old Men also. No Country for Old Men is the success story. No Country for Old Men is why anything with Cormac McCarthy's name attached to it is going to be considered an Oscar contender, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, because that film... That film winning Best Picture... Somebody mentioned this on Twitter recently, and I think it's so true. We don't appreciate how atypical a Best Picture winner No Country for Old Men is. I feel like. And and it was a completely bygone conclusion. And I think part of that was... Relatively quickly. Right. That's the kind of shocking thing. Probably the the thing that made it such a foregone conclusion in that race is probably what... It sounds like it's a circular logic, but that's probably not a Best Picture winner. And you don't get an atypical winner like that if it's not a foregone conclusion. Right. Yes. No. I I agree that the. But like, how the, did it become that way? Well. Well, <laughs> well and th- the interesting thing is, I think for a long time we didn't really see it for being the Oscar anomaly that it was, because the narrative of No Country for Old Men in the fall of two thousand seven was so strongly twinned with There Will Be Blood, and for whatever reason, in the ways that these narratives just sort of coalesce and happen, the idea happened very early that. No Country for Old Men was the square one, and There Will Be Blood was the cool one. And There Will Be Blood was seen as more daring, less accessible, um, more difficult to pull off, and with a more dynamic lead performance. And so I think in many ways, especially among the critical community, 
There Will Be Blood was seen as, oh, if only this could... Hollywood's not, not you know, we're not cool enough to let this thing win Best Picture. It's too daring. It's too whatever. Never mind the fact that the Oscars embraced that movie as much as they embraced anything that year, right? Um, but because No Country for Old Men was the one winning these awards, that movie was painted, at least in comparison, as the comparatively square one, as the comparatively more typical one the more uh mainstream one and i think without that twinned narrative i think we it's i think it's much much more easy and clear to see no country for old men for being the daring movie that it is for being the atypical best picture yeah it definitely sells short the amount of people who were you know put off by the final act of that movie and especially like the ending of the movie i I mean there were major critics at the time especially when that movie debuted at Cannes, who had major issues with the scene where josh berlin is killed having a major issue that they saw it as a major narrative scene in the movie and it happens off screen and it pissed people off at like when it took people a minute to like get perhaps on board yeah and i don't i'm not going to be one of those people that says like oh well there will be blood is so much cooler but what i do think is it is a stranger movie and in terms of oscar it does help normalize a movie like no country for old men for stodgier academy members i think that's probably true although it's wild to me that people would have been more satisfied with the ending of there will be blood which to me I I love the ending of No Country for Old Men and I think the the sort of the loose ends nature of it the fact that it ends with him having this you know relatively mellow conversation with Kelly McDonald's character then wandering out into the street and then sort of being beset upon by happenstance and coincidence and that's sort of how the movie ends was dissatisfying to a lot of people that it didn't end with a shootout, that it didn't end with good and evil right. having this great standoff. I love that because about that it's movie. plotty enough to mask that it is ultimately an allegorical movie. Right. Whereas there will be blood is just like pure allegory. Well, <laughs> you know, there will be pure, blood goes in the like, total other way. Whereas we're giving you the final confrontation of the two characters who have been at the center of this movie. And we're giving it to you in the most sort of like over the top, like you want it, you're fucking getting it. You want these two characters to finally face off. It's going to be this ugly and this bloody and this barbaric and this off the rails. And to me, but if you interpret it purely on a plot level, what's happening to these characters, you're doing the movie wrong, right? Like, yes, those two movies have interesting dualities in that way. They do. I, like I said, I prefer, I prefer the way no country for old men. ends. I think the ending of there will be blood has always to me had this element of, I don't know how to end this without going the most over the top. And I get that, like, metaphorically, this idea that, like, wealth corrupts absolutely and wealth will, you know, this kind of drive in wealth has poisoned somebody to such a degree that their, you know, their violence is so ugly and un- untamed and uncontrolled. All of this sort of stuff. It works well, for the me. two American beasts. It is. Yeah. 
religion. It's wealth by uh, religion, and it is wealth by right. capitalism. And they are the two uh, forces in America right. squaring off. And uh, yeah, it's only going to end in violence. There's a degree. <laughs> there's a degree in my reaction to the end of "There Will Be Blood" where I'm like, I get it, and then it goes on for another ten minutes. So, but that's me. That's you know whatever. Um, I have a I have a horse in this race, and I did. But um, so anyway, after there will be blood, they, uh, they adapt the road. Who directed the road? Is it Hil- John, John Hillcoat? Hillcoat? Oh boy! Right. So, what were his other movies? Now, sorry, I'm I'm real time now. Lawless, um, right? Lawless, aka the Wettest County. Which remember <laughs> that was the working title of that movie for the longest time, the Wettest County. Yeah, they should have kept it. Not a good movie. Sorry, let me just look up The Road really quick. A movie we could do on this podcast wouldn't. The Road? No, The Road, I believe, oh, yeah, is Wettest a County. nominee somewhere. Was it really? Ah, let me look. I'm looking up John Hillcoat, too. Yeah, look up John, John Hillcoat. John Hillcoat also has The Proposition, was like the first one. Oh, God, this was it. Triple Nine. Oh, God, that was him. Okay. Crazy. Yeah, I don't think The Road got any Academy Award nominations. The thing about Why The did Road... I think it was like a cinematography nominee. I don't know. Cinematography by Javier Aguirre-Sorob, who did a good job with that movie. Like, it's a very handsome movie. The thing about The Road, as it was being anticipated, because it was obviously the follow-up to No Country for Old Men in terms of Cormac McCarthy adaptations... And it starred Viggo Mortensen in what seemed like a very, like, showcase performance. Any kind of movie where it's, like, one person at the center of this movie uh, for seemingly a long stretch of time. And, like, it's him and Cody Smith-McPhee as the kid, right? But Mm -hmm. people really expected, and this is also Viggo Mortensen coming off of his nomination for Eastern Promises in 2007. So, like, there's a lot of anticipation for this. But anybody... The Road was, like, the hugest novel of that time. And right. The most praise novel of that time. The movie was somewhat delayed, if I remember correctly. I think that's right. I think it was supposed um, to come out the year before. But the... So there was a lot of anticipation, but then by the time it arrived, it was like, well, do we really fucking want this thing? And, like, it just... It didn't match the expectations of the book. Well, and also, um, anybody who had read the novel was very, very insistent on being, like, careful. Like, anybody who was anticipating the movie who hadn't read the book, people who read the book were just like, just so you know, it's the most depressing thing you've ever seen, you'll ever see in your entire life. <laughs> like, there was, a, there was a lot of, like, pre-warning of just, like, just so you know, this thing is bleak as hell, and it's probably not going to be an Oscar fave because of how bleak it is. And... Ultimately, if you know, I'm sure there were many reasons why the road didn't latch on as an awards play, but like that definitely seems like it was one of them. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I the think one the release was kind of half-assed to like I think they ex- uh, I'm pretty sure that's a Weinstein Co movie, which like we know how they shuffled priorities all the time in terms of what movie they, you know... So much positioned. so that it ended up getting distributed officially by Dimension. Yep. So that's how much of a Weinstein Company movie it was. Um, and then the one that people forget that nobody saw and that hardly anybody 
really remembers existed is Child of God, which was uh, James Franco directing based on uh, the novel by Cormac McCarthy. Probably Cormac McCarthy's most controversial novel. Um, I saw that movie at, I want to say, New York Film Festival uh, that year and did not care for it, but I also don't remember a ton about it now. But it is a... uh, It's a really violent movie, as I recall. It's another Cormac McCarthy, like, violent thing. I think there's necrophilia in it. There's stuff... That's what it was. I thought I read, like... Yeah. It's an unpleasant movie. It stars... um, It was Scott Hayes, who I think was, like, a buddy of James Franco's in the lead. This was when James Franco was at his, like, peak indulgent filmmaker, where he was just sort of adapting these sort of major works and making and a nobody saw the bunch movies. of movies at once and they all just like didn't get much distribution at all and they just sort of vanished this was when he well, was like re-editing that cruising. Were for nobody but himself like, right right um this was his very much like james franco it was like he was going to grad school this was around the time that he was um uh, guest starring on General Hospital. There was a lot of just like, what the fuck is James Franco doing? What is like, what's happening here? And so, give me one second as they look. So, Child of God comes in the same year as Interior Leather Bar, which was the re editing of uh, Cruising. And then As I Lay Dying, which the, the, the Faulkner adaptation. And the year before, the uh, sound and the fury, the other Welkner adaptation. So it's just like it's just in this in the midst of this really, um, oh, and uh, my own private river, which was the my own private Idaho, glomming onto thing, right? So it's just like it's in the middle of the most self indulgent filmmaker willmaker. You know what I mean? Just like what the fuck are you doing, James Franco era? But it's not a very pleasant movie, and it's not like it's like I, you know, you can't call it like a forgotten whatever. Like nobody should seek out this movie. It's not worth it. It's the definition of not worth it. Can we talk about how the character names in the road are basically that Jack K. Harry? Uh, oh, family feud a man, bit. a young man, an old, old man, man, any man. I love that clip. So much. Name something you must have in order to live. A man. <laughs> One of the seven wonders of the world. A rich man. Something that improves with age. A young man. A Christmas present you'd exchange. A old man. A condemned person's last request. Any man. A woman. A motherly woman. <laughs> a bearded man. I love that clip so much. Seek it out, people. Um, I I'll might... put it on the Tumblr. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about fastbender for a second because we haven't really talked about it oh boy his character in this is the very definition of the sort of straight laced lead that is made to be overshadowed by more colorful supporting characters we see this a lot in a lot of movies and it's not that people he's, don't know what to do with fastbender he's not bad in this movie at all actually he like he holds the center of it pretty well but like he is made to be overshadowed in this movie by other people which is interesting because he's the holdover from Ridley Scott's previous film he's was in Prometheus the year before mm-hmm. this and in a way more dynamic a character that's way more appropriate 
to him and it's a more interesting character but like but also the counselor advances the cinematic language of michael fassbender definitionally good at sex (laughs) okay this is my thing about him being good at sex in this movie it opens with basically a sex scene entirely under sheets because apparently that's something that heterosexuals do Um, it's none of my business I will say it, none of my. I mean, I felt like I was watching something that was fully none of my business. I, I, I as an audience member, felt like I was invading on them. And it's he goes down on her, and she's like full yelling, like yelling. It sounds like she says "ow." <laughs> I don't know how you can make someone say "ow" by doing that, but the, the idea is he makes her come very hard. Yes. That is the idea. Definitionally good at sex, Michael Fassbender. Think about that the next time you watch Steve Jobs. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is only if... Think about that when you watch Frank. Scott. God, talk about... Uh, I I, there's a giving now head. That's, there's a giving that, head joke that's a there. where if someone went down on you, you might say, ow, because... There's a lot, that that's a lot of head. head yeah. Thing. All right. Two years prior to The Counselor... Fassbender gets a good bit of precursor attention and, and good pit, a good bit of advanced buzz for his performance in Shame that is a divisive movie that I mostly really like, and I think he's very good in it, and I think he probably yeah. did deserve a Best Actor nomination, and he doesn't get it for many reasons. Um, is one of those reasons the fact that Oscar voters were jealous of his, his dick? Maybe. I'm not ruling it out. I think maybe it's more so the reason is people talk nope. more about his dick nope. than the performance. Nope, it's jealousy. I'm saying, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm putting it down. It is jealousy. No, um, no, that, that became, yes, that became the story of shame. It quite literally uh, cast a shadow over the rest of that film. Jesus Christ. What? It did. That's a phrase. That's a common phrase. It cast a shadow, and it did. Um... Yeah. Also, Carrie Mulligan is fantastic. But that's a movie that as many people uh, disliked as liked. And I thought he was great. Yeah, Carrie Mulligan rules in that movie. And so there was a sense in some corners that, like, if not Michael Fassbender is overdue for Oscar attention at this, but at the very least, like, well, if it didn't happen for shame, when's it going to happen? Because it's going to happen. Like, everybody's, you know... You knew this was coming. And so the counselor obviously didn't do it and was probably never going to do it for him because of the nature of the role in relative to the other roles in the movie. But it did happen that year for his performance in 12 Years a Slave, which is a much more, it makes a lot more sense that that's the performance, that's the role that would get him his first Oscar nomination. Well, and it's a, it's a performance and a role that is very different from it. It's, Obviously, leading up to the nominations was a Best Picture frontrunner. It's a very different role and performance than what people had already seen him in. So it's like it shows a certain level of versatility. I also think because people don't know, it hit maybe a sweet spot for like expectations and awards because Hollywood doesn't know how to use Michael Fassbender because it's like, is he a character actor or is he a leading man? He's neither. So <laughs> where Good news. like nobody knows where to put him. Granted, like I think he's amazing in Steve Jobs. I 
thought he should have won that year. Me too. A lot of that is the fact that the competition wasn't great, but like, I think he rules in that movie. Right. And like, even that it's like, it feels like the, uh, probably the closest to being a leading man that he ever pulls off successfully is shame. But like Steve jobs, it's like he got leading man cred for not being a leading man. I, how, how do I want to put this? I don't it's, know. <laughs> I'm interested. Though. It's a character role. That's the lead, but like the movie doesn't treat him in leading man ways. If that makes sense. Also like the way that like a light between oceans expects Fassbender to be a leading man, the way the counselor expects him to be a leading man. The other interesting thing is, and I'm going to tally this up really quickly, so bear with me for like half a second, but. (laughs) So in the five years from, he sort of comes onto the scene with uh, Fish Tank in 2009 to, or sorry, Hunger and Fish Tank in 2009, because Hunger doesn't really come out in the States until. 2009 2010 i think the same is true of fish tank so anyway it's about 13 14 movies of his that emerge in the five years 2009 ish to 2013 with the counselor right that's a lot of movies that's a lot of movies Mm -hmm. in a short amount of time you look at the last five years of his career since from 2017 on the only movies of his that have made it to that have been made song to song which is he prominent in that or is he just like one of people? He's prominent in that. I haven't seen song to song, uh, song to song, alien covenant, the snowman, notoriously, uh, iconically playing Harry, Harry hole, uh, Mr. Policeman. He gave you, uh, his Harry hole. Um, and X-Men dark Phoenix, which at this point, it's hard to, like, by the by this point... You in the almost ex- can't count song to song, too, because that's a Terrence Malick that they shot it years before it came out. But anyway, the last five years, he's been in four movies, and, and it's those four movies. So, like, and you would think, like, oh, that's the career of somebody who has been making a television show for the last five years. It's like, no, that's not it. He's just not working very much right now, and I don't know why. And being a parent. Sure, and I'm, you know... I am always one to just be like parent Schmarin. Like I'm a terrible person in that way. Um, <laughs> like, I never think about, about your you're children. always the one to remind me that like, yeah, this person had a child and I'm like, Oh, whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> let them have their children let them have and their children. focus on their children. I agree. No, I definitely agree. Um, but what I'm However, saying is he's, there's a scarcity of Michael Fassbender right now. The next, well, he got dubbed like box office poison, which like, I mean, dumb, if though. he's not playing Magneto, like, and people don't, like, always think of him as, like, a Magneto, like, I I get it. Actors but, like, don't matter for box office anymore, though. So, like, it... it... They don't. And I think, I think he's still someone that, you know, directors don't know what to do with him. I'm really curious, though, because I do think he's poised to come back in a big way with his next movie. Well... Which is the Taika Waititi comedy. Except read, that read down that cast list as far, and I'll, um, you let me know when you get to the part. He's the lead of the movie. Yeah, but read down that cast list and let me know when you get to the part where I'm talking about. Army Hammer yes, is okay. in this movie. Yes, yes. This is what I'm saying. As a supporting character. However, like, this is... Do they all the money in the world character. him? It's a very movie? big character. Oh, yeah. I just think we could be preparing for a comeback for Fassbender. 
I don't even think it's necessarily he needs a comeback, but like, yes, the a a return to some kind of form. I I don't disagree. I'm being I'm being um I'm catastrophizing everything that Army Hammer is uh, <laughs> is attached to these days, uh, because part of me is just like all of those movies are going to be thrown into a volcano and we're never going to see them. Um, but that is probably not true. Taika Waititi has enough many... clout. How many movies Kenneth Branagh can make and release before Death on the Nile ever sees the light? Let's of take day. that as a challenge, Kenneth Branagh. Let's do that. Do that challenge. Um, but yes, it's a movie about it's a sports comedy drama about a soccer team, um, and and it's Michael Fassbender and it's Taika Waititi, which is an interesting pairing of director and star that I think will bring out something interesting in Fassbender's performance. I'm into it. Army Hammer aside. And Elizabeth Moss is in it. We love Lizzie Moss. Saying you can recut these movies. Uh, we are talking about Ridley Scott, the one who went <laughs> right. and did it. Right. And did it in two fucking weeks. Let's set up a phone call. <laughs> Let's set up a phone call between Taika Waititi and Ridley Scott, and they'll figure out how next and goal. And Kenneth Branagh. And Kenneth Branagh, and we'll figure out next goal wins, and we'll figure out Death on the Nile, and everything will be fine. All right. Um, let's delve into, there's a couple of miscellaneous things about The Counselor that I wanted to talk about. One of which is, it did not get nominated for much. Even for a movie that did not get any Oscar nominations, it's not like it even got, like, Golden Satellite stuff, or, like, it, you know, led the critic's choice down a wild goose chase or anything like that. No. It, um, was nominated, I will say, for a MTV Movie and TV Award, which, don't get me started... On what a loss and an end of an era it is that the MTV Movie Awards now have to include television. Dumb, stinky television. It's going to be like MTV Movie and TV and And TikTok TikTok Awards, Awards, yes. I am going to self-immolate. Yep, that's exactly what it's going to be. If it's not already that, it's we are at most two years away from it being that. Or it being not even TikTok, but like, what is the next thing after TikTok? No, it's absolutely going right. to be that. Uh, it is. It will. It will map the degradation of uh, youth culture in America, and I'm going to be bummed about it. Anyway, the one uh, the one thing that they are doing good now, and I don't even know if it's a, still a category, but at some point MTV started adding the best scared as shit performance, <laughs> which. Is so dumb that I love it. It's it's so it's stupid. Dumb because like they don't even nominate like people who are scared in scary movies. It's just performance in a scary movie. So just say best horror performance. Like they nominate villains from horror movies. Like it doesn't make sense. But it's that very like MTV thing where like we don't trust the youth the youth culture to know what we're talking about unless we like condescend to them and so there we are (laughs) the best thing about the best wtf moment at the uh, at least as depicted on the imdb page is imdb has the film that gets nominated but also has a little write-up about why it got nominated i love this more more weird award shows should provide this information for imdb so the counselor is nominated for as you might imagine cameron diaz and the write-up here is Having sex in a car is pretty much a rite of passage, but having sex with a car? Cameron Diaz's Malkina gets down and dirty with a bright yellow Ferrari to show the world how it's done. Is that what happened? Jesus she showed Christ. the world how it's done? I feel like we haven't properly unpacked this scene, and that's what our listeners are going to want us to do. So we should maybe take a moment 
Talk about the scene. All right, but then let me revisit the other nominees for Best WTF Moment. But yes, let's talk about this scene. She... It is told in flashback. It is told as a um, a pioneer in the Old West would talk about the gold <laughs> mine that he found in the mountains of California. Like, it is told as if passing a legend of Paul Bunyan down to the next generation. It is... And it is also performed with that level of awe and wonder like javier bradem the expression on his face is i think one of his like 10 most iconic acting moments it's he it's like he is finding a new stalagmite like he wandered into that cave and there's diamonds everywhere it is totally that like what's the chamber that aladdin goes into that's like filled the cave of wonders Yes, it, it is very much. I mean, he's kind of looking into it. I'm. I, that's why I'm surprised you you came up with that metaphor. But yeah, uh, forgive me, forgive me. Um, but it's played as comedy. It really is. But like, also kind of this darkness. I don't think Ridley Scott really knows what to do with that scene. I'm. It is ludicrous and funny as it is presented. It is both of those things. Javier, Javier and, Bardem's... Like, he describes it like octopus suckers on the He, he doesn't say the word... He doesn't say the word lampreys, but he means lampreys. He means, like, yes, you go to an aquarium and you see, you know, eels or whatever. That, sea like, creatures on the glass. Sucker onto the glass. And that's how he describes the effect of uh, Malkina's bi- uh, business. Dance. Yes. Um, on the windshield of this car. You're right. The, the It is part of this is... It's Cameron Diaz fucking going for it, and God bless her. Um, God bless her. Clearly a body double. Sure. And, like, you don't, thank God, see. No, you don't. Part of me... Because we don't need, we don't need an actress to do that for us. We get it. I we had, understand. I had we, Mandela... We have I had Mandela affected that we see um, how to put this. You, you see... Um, you see what he sees in the glass. No, I had Mandela affected that you see some kind of like a like a dripping liquid down the windshield, like from. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Weird. Like I don't know why, but like that's in my I mean, mind. I was like, he saw something. Describes that. He does describe that. Um, his expressions in this. It's not even. I think you almost want to like graft onto him the sort of Warner Brothers Howling Wolf. Uh, kind of thing to me though do you remember the saturday night live sketch the continental i love the continental so that sketch was essentially wouldn't it be funny if christopher walken played a sexually harassing um hotel guest it is the funniest cliche and it's all in first person pov so like you are the pov of this woman who's in a hotel room with the Continental, who is like... With a dirty Frenchman. With making... I don't even think he's French. That's the thing. I think he's like vaguely European. I think I think he's exactly. like very un, uh, unspecific in, in his foreignness. But he keeps making passes at her and she keeps sort of like trying to brush him away. It's very sort of like Pepe Le Pew. But it's, very, it's first person, so you only see Christopher Walken. And at one in one of those sketches, I can't remember what the woman he's looking at is doing, but he just goes, Wow. 
Wowie, wow, wow, wow. Wowie, wow, wow, wow. And that's all I can think of when I see Javier Bardem's face in that scene. It's childlike awe. It is. It's just, it's, it's, it's funny and shocking. And again, you, no other movie is going to give you a scene as memorable as that. So, yes, that's the calling uh, uh, card of this movie. No spoilers is all I'll say. Um, but uh, the thing about Cameron Diaz in this, I am shocked that she took this role because of this scene. A performer of their stature doing this because, yeah. like, is it, I mean, like, this is basically kind of a giant middle finger studio movie that, like, again, I think they, everybody involved feels like they got away with something. Do you think she knew that she was going to unofficially retire within a year of making this movie when she did that scene? Do you think she knew she Absolutely was just like... Absolutely not. I mean, no? this is the thing that I was going to kind of say, and I don't want to play armchair psychologist to Cameron Diaz sure. because... I, you know, we don't know her, but um, I think she really went for it. And I feel like she probably understood that, you know, it is a comedic scene ultimately. But I think in the press and the way that the movie was responded to, specifically this scene, I feel like she was treated pretty badly. She got the Sharon Stone treatment. She did. And it sucks. And I don't. If I'm not saying that that whole thing is why she went to retire, but it probably didn't help. I'm sure it was just like one more thing of just like, well, you know, they're not even going to appreciate this. They're not even going to appreciate when I take a risk. She's trying to do something different. And like she she makes I feel like people like us are willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. And there's even some critics that think that she's incredible. In there the are. Yeah. But like. It it couldn't have helped no. to like take a risk and like try to do yeah you know, and to become a, the know, butt of jokes because of it and to become the butt of jokes and then the next year have these like not good like well, this trio the trio of, of right things her last people didn't like or see her last three movies that are all released in 2014 are two very typical and uninspiring mainstream comedies which is the other woman which is not. Actually, the other woman's not bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. It's her and Leslie Mann and um, Kate Upton as mm-hmm. three women who are all being cheated on by the same guy, by uh, Nikolai Koster Waldo from uh, uh, Game of Thrones. It's I mean, it's fu- that's the guy. Yeah, I mean, like, of course he's cheating. It's directed by Nick Cassavetes. I always forget that. That's so weird. Um, oh, interesting. She's done multiple Nick Cassavetes movies then. What was the other? Uh, isn't uh, what's the what's the movie where her daughter has cancer? Oh, um, it's not the other sister, but it's my sister's sister. My no. sister's keeper. My sister's keeper. Isn't that a Nick Cassavetes movie? Give me a second to look that up. That is the movie that uh, made me cry while watching it on cable, and I was furious at it. <laughs> that is a Nick Cassavetes movie. Yeah. Um, so it's that one. It's Sex Tape with uh, Jason Siegel, which is the first movie to understand that the cloud could be bad. And <laughs> um, and then, quite regrettably, uh, calendar-wise, the last Cameron Diaz movie we ever got, which is her being cast as Miss Hannigan in the Annie remake that was just not a good idea. This just wasn't a good idea. I'm I'm sad that that's the last Cameron Diaz movie. 
I know. She is seemingly not sad. There's been like sure. the whole because uh, internet discourse is nothing but uh, cyclical as it all swirls us down the drain. Um, another resurgence of people being like, oh, yeah, Cameron Diaz is retired. We love her. Please come back to us. I want her to be happy. I like that she's making her clean wine. And, uh, you know, if she's happy, I'm happy. Like, I would love to see her on screen again. But if that's not what she wants to do, then I don't want her to do that. I'm happy with her showing up on um, Drew Barrymore's talk show as a hologram, along with uh, in-person Lucy Liu, and revealing that she said that she recited the E.E. Cummings poem from In Her Shoes at Drew Barrymore's wedding. I like... Oh my god, yes. It's either that or it was the other way around, that Drew recited it at her wedding. But I think it was Cameron recited I carry your heart I carry it in my heart at Drew Barrymore's wedding which did make tears come to my eyes when I first heard of it because what a wonderful thing that was when Drew Barrymore's talk show was very new and we were but we were all sort of like unprepared for what we were getting with it which is extreme silliness but also like arresting heartwarming moments it was just like oh my god um Wonderful earnestness. Go look up that whole episode. It was the Charlie's Angels reunion episode. Drew and Lucy and... Uh, I will try to find a clip for the Tumblr And Cameron page. D and Destiny. Although Destiny's Child was not there, unfortunately, because that would have Could really... you imagine if they were? That would be great. That would have been the gag That would be the gag. best episode of television ever. All right. So back to the MTV Movie and TV Awards for a second, because I just want to read off the other nominees. The other nominees were... I hate these nominees. Anchorman 2 The Legend Continues, which was the Channel 4 News Team's Afternoon is no longer a delight, as their speeding van filled with bowling balls, scorpions, and hot oil takes a tumble on the highway. Okay, why is the Anchorman 2 WTF moment not the one where all of the different news teams show up? Yeah. Including Kanye West. scene in the movie. Including, (laughs) seek out the outtakes of that scene, by the way, because Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, you show the part where, like, they literally improv that scene where Amy Poehler's like, Hey, you eat pussy? You better. <laughs> You're gonna. You're gonna. It's it's very funny. Um I'll I'll clip that into into this too because it's it's great. Okay. This is the end, which is a movie that I saw and didn't like, but I don't remember this part where it says Danny McBride shows an apocalyptic world at uncomfortable theater goers everywhere that there's no better pet than a scantily clad Channing Tatum, which is very like straight guys uh Hauling out a sexy Channing Tatum as a, a weapon of comedy is such, it's the straightest guy thing. And you lost me at Danny McBride. Yeah. Okay. Um, Bad Grandpa nominated for jo- Johnny Knoxville and Jackson Nickel managed to strike fear into a room full of unsuspecting beauty pageant loving parents thanks to a bump and grind dance routine to a warrant classic. So they do cherry pie at a, uh, at a beauty pageant. I just, I just can't with the Jackass movie. It's not like, my thing. When the Paramount it's not my delays thing. just happened. Yeah. And all of the people who were excited for the new Jackass movie were like, no. I was like, good. Your pain restores me. <laughs> I'm happy letting people enjoy the Jackass movies, but it's just not my thing. It's not for me. <sighs> I mean. It's not for me. And then the winner, somewhat predictably, is um, my my nemesis, the Wolf, the Wolf of Wall Street, which is, of course, 
the uh, the the quaaludes, the quaaludes scene. scene. Which, if you're gonna give Wolf of Wall Street an award, fine, give it to that. Like, eh, I, 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 I am a defender of Wolf of Wall Street. I'm, that's fine. I just is not. I mean, thing. not even defender. I think that I, I understand why you. Have you don't need to defend it. it. Everybody likes it. I'm right. the one. Everybody who else like defends it. it. I don't need to defend it. I think yeah. that is. I'm I alone mean, on my what, little. What can you even thing. say of one of Scorsese's best? But like, I, whatever. Everybody gets no mad complaints. when you say bad things about Scorsese, so I'm not going to say anything bad about Scorsese. All right, it's 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 a Fight Club situation where it's like a, there's a whole subset of people who are defending it that don't love that don't understand right. what that movie is. That and I'm a, and I'm a Fight Club guy, so like I have no place to talk. Okay, so anything else we want to say about the counselor before we jump into the IMDb game? Um, for whatever reason in my mind, I knew, I remembered this as a Fox movie, but why I thought it was like dumped by Fox because of the Disney acquisition, I don't know what it is, but I will forever think of it that way. <laughs> but the Disney acquisition wasn't for several more years, right? Right. But it, I mean, like it probably could have an interesting footnote in that of, you know, this movie probably lost a lot of money. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yes, I do bet that is true. Um, yeah. All right. That's all I got. For we this didn't movie. really talk about Penelope Cruz, who I, I mean, think is trying her best with a nothing. There's role. not really to, much to talk about with Penelope Cruz, unfortunately. Yeah. There's like the engagement scene and the sex scene, yeah. which like also made me be like, why did she want to do this movie? Right. Like, I think it's just, I guess a lot of that probably goes back to Ridley Scott and everybody wants to work with Ridley Scott. Yeah. His legendary status yes. is certainly earned. That's why his I movies think. are all incredibly well cast. Like they're they're yeah. they're incredibly well populated. Um This is an imperfect movie that I have a decent amount of admiration for. Yeah. In terms of his movies. There he has so yeah. many like huge and boring movies that like, This is not boring. I can't this is not one the that plot, I shit on. The plot is impenetrable on. and and doesn't matter, but like because of the sort of scene work, it is not boring. Right. All right. Want to tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? Uh, listen, guys, the IMDb game, we uh, end our episodes with this where we challenge each other uh, with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those are television, voice-only performances, or uh, non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. But after two wrong guesses, we'll get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, beheadings, <laughs> um, Oral sex scenes where people are shouting "ow." Um, yeah, that's the IMDb game. All right. Would you, Chris, like to give first or guess first? I'm gonna make you guess first. All right. Let's hear it. Uh, you know, one award that we love to talk about when we can that you didn't mention: uh, the Yoga Awards. Yes. Which are the inverse of the Spanish Goyas. They are basically the Spanish Razzies. Yes. Where, you know, they list the worst Spanish films, but also the worst uh, foreign films from the rest of the globe. Mm -hmm. They named The Counselor the worst uh, foreign film of this year 
I think that's a little blunt. Usually the <laughs> yogas make me mad because they also said the worst Spanish film of this year is Almodovar's I'm So Excited. I think people should let that nice little comedy <laughs> be everybody hates it and thinks it's Almodovar's worst movie. I say leave that nice man alone. He is great and he is allowed to make a farce if he wants to. Anyway. Listen, every um, great movie, every great filmmaker is going to have a worst movie because there's... It's not his worst movie. Well, but also, like, what I'm saying is, the worst film by a great director is still a film by a great director. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's always... And I think it's fun. There's always... Every director's got their worst film just because they've got a list of films that they've all done. Something's going to be worse. Their worst director is David O. Russell, but for Silver Linings Playbook, like... Wow. That's weird. Wrong. If you give it to him for joy, I understand. You give it to him for American Hustle, I understand. But like, that's that it's just fine. incorrect to do. Like, even if you don't love Silver Linings Playbook, it's not the worst of anything. I'm sorry. Their worst foreign actress is Oprah for The Butler. We've done an episode Ouch. on that. We think she's quite good. They can shut up. However, uh, the long journey of this hmm. is uh, their worst foreign actor, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> For Silver Linings Playbook? Or no, or no, that was Bradley Cooper. Sorry, why am I stupid? For Only God Forgives. Oh. Why wouldn't you give that your worst director? Oh. Poor Ryan Gosling. But I, uh, this is the end of the road for the yogas because I have given you Ryan Gosling. And we've never done Ryan Gosling. All right, well... Some of these seem like they would be, <clears throat> excuse me, some of these seem like they would be pretty obvious. I imagine La La Land. La La Land, correct. I imagine Blade Runner 2049. Correct, Blade Runner 2049. A great movie. Um, a great movie. All right, um, let's see. Drive? Drive. <gasps> three for three. Three okay. for three. Can you get a perfect score on the Gosling? All right. Part of me feels like there's a, there's a non-zero chance that Only God Forgives is one of these, because it's definitely showed up before. I believe in Kristen Scott Thomas's. Um, so that chaos element is out there in the ether. That said... He is much better known for The Notebook, so I'm going to say The Notebook. Incorrect. Fuck. Is it Only God Forgives? Incorrect. Okay. What's the year? All right. Your year, which probably means you're going to get it, is 2010. 2010. No, I just got to mentally reorient myself and put myself in 2010. 2010, Ryan Gosling. So we're after... Half Nelson, obviously. We are after Lars and the Real Girl. Oh, 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 it's... several um, year break because of the lovely bones. Right, it's Blue Valentine. It's Blue Valentine. Surprisingly enduring in the IMDb game is Blue Valentine for a movie that, like, notoriously was not seen by very many people. Catch me on the right day and I say Blue Valentine's his best performance. It's a really good performance. It's a really... um, kind of, uh, I don't want to say egoless because that's not the right word for it, but like he's really willing to make that character not likable in that movie. And I like that about it. Alright. Yay! He has a good known for. It's a good known for. I'm glad it wasn't Only God Forgives. I'm glad that that was not there for him. <laughs> so, 
for you, I obviously delved into the House of Gucci for this. I took a trip to the House of Gucci. I have been a Gucci all my life. Um, The name that I've chosen for you, I am very surprised we've never done before. It is somebody who is, in many ways, a patron saint of this podcast. You hear her dulcet tones every week <gasps> at the beginning. Every oh, so time... Happy. We always are getting uh, Twitter comments about what is uh, what is our intro from. It is Salma Hayek saying, and from Canada Water, from the 2006 Oscars nominations, because uh, she was being very deadpan after being very enthusiastic about Patton's Labyrinth. Um, so if anybody is new to the podcast and you don't want to go all the way back to our Ask the Dust episode, that is what it is from. Um, yeah, give me Salma Hayek's known for. Oh, I'm so, thank you very much for giving me Salma's known for. You're welcome. Um, I, I wonder what this is gonna, I, her Oscar nomination has to be there, so Frida. Correct, Frida. Perfect. I, sadly, I don't think Beatrice at dinner is going to be there, even though she is incredible in that movie. Love that movie. Um, hmm. Because it's you giving it to me. <laughs> I have I'm, no influence over what shows up on her IMDb known for. No, but you are one of the major supporters of her performance in the movie Savages. And I feel like you would want to talk about that. So I'm going to say Savages. Listen, I'm always going to want to talk about Savages and her eating a lamb chop with much menace in Savages and implicitly threatening the life of Blake Lively in Savages. But no, it is not, unfortunately. Okay. Talk she should about have another movie that would have know, would have voted for her for an Oscar nomination for that movie if I had the chance. Absolutely. Um, so one strike, no savages. I'm somewhat tempted to say the Hitman's Bodyguard because it was apparently enough of a hit to get you know a um, sequel and a sequel that puts her characters uh, identifies her character within the exactly. The new title. She's yeah. the hitman's wife. She is the titular the bodyguard's she, wife. She is what? the titular hitman's wife. Okay. Um, hmm. I'm gonna go for it. Hitman's bodyguard. I feel like if I can't get the title, I should not guess it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so no, wait, are no. you guessing it or are you I'm not going, guessing I'm, it? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back because I feel like one of the older iconic performances has to be there. So I'm gonna actually guess from dusk till dawn. It's a great guess and a movie that I love and will try and watch every uh, Halloween ish time. But no, not Fuck. from dusk till dawn. All right, so you have three movies that you are missing. You get three years. They are. Each separated by two years, which I think is very interesting. 1995, 1997, 1999. So I was right, just not about the right movie. Correct, um, correct. You, 99 is yes. probably Dogma. It is Dogma. She which plays she's really funny in. Angel, um, yes. I couldn't tell you which year it she's is. She's a muse, sorry. I'm a muse, that's what she says. <laughs> Uh, couldn't tell you what year it is, but one of those has to be Desperado. Yeah, 95 is Desperado. That was the year before okay. From Dusk Till Dawn. That was basically the first thing anybody saw her in. Was So From Dusk Till Dawn is 96. So this is right after that. So this is when she's getting cast in, like, sex pot roles. Um, 
There's a couple of these. Just trying to think of which one. Hmm. It's not fifty. Is it fifty-four or is fifty-four ninety-nine? Ninety-eight. So it's not fifty-four. It's not fifty-four. It's gotta be um, "Fools Rush In." It is "Fools Rush In," her romantic comedy with Matthew, Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry, interesting. It's a very, very '90s movie poster where it's both of their sort of floating heads above a cityscape of that is both New York City with the twin towers, I will say, and also a cactus desert to to really underline the culture clash between the two of them. And it's her gotcha. sort of seductively whispering in his ear, and he has a shirt and tie and is looking at her at the corners of his eyes, and it's very. Uh, uh, they're mismatched, but they're lovers. Anyway. I'm going to argue adamantly that Salma deserves a better known for. I mean, yes. I think Desperado there makes a lot of sense. I think yeah. Frida there makes a lot of sense. Dogma's an odd choice, but you know, I think she's fun in that movie. So, And I think Fools Rush In as being indicative of that early period of fame where she could headline a romantic comedy. I'm into it. But it should be something else besides Dog. It should be Beatrice. Well, yes. But also, that's a very small movie. But yes. she's She rules in that movie. She should have been nominated. All right. Good job, Chris, at the IMDb game. That's our episode, you guys. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account, at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Uh, show up at the very least for Chris's chaotic teasing of the movies of whatever the next month's worth of movies we're going to be covering. Uh, it's a very fun guessing game that will also make you want to lock Chris in jail for the rest of his life. Um, Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can fi- find me uh, mashing my bits against a car oh windshield on Twitter and Letterbox at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. What did I say about jail? I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. Don't make us come after you with a bolito. Write something nice. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Oh,